Welcome to the Wellness Plus Podcast. I'm your host, Karina Rachel, and I'm joined today by Robert Gardner. He's a massage therapist and yoga instructor. And in this interview, I was hoping to discuss uh, pain science, or perhaps more simply put, uh, what are the different things that people can do to help themselves get out of pain that maybe uh, are less invasive, less expensive than a lot of the uh, kind of typical pain management uh, things that, you know, most people think of. Yeah. Oh, boy. So uh, the reason I teach yoga and the reason I teach massage is because both of those things are helping people have a higher quality of life and manage pain. Mm -hmm. Even at their most simple level, um, let's say you have somebody who's stressed. I have neck pain, you know, just a little bit of neck pain. They, you know, just Mm -hmm. don't feel great that day. If they go see their hairdresser and their hairdresser shampoos their scalp, do they feel better? Probably. (laughs) And there's this um, thing going on in the pain science community. I hear it regularly. They talk about the biopsychosocial model. What they're doing is they're looking at pain management and they're factoring in biological components, Mm -hmm. psychological components, and then social components of pain. If I'm in pain and I have a chance to sit and talk to you for 10 minutes about the fact that I'm in pain and you Mm -hmm. say, what kind of pain? And I describe it and then you're like, where is it at? Okay, what level is it at? I can almost guarantee you that after you've discussed my pain with me, and get me to take a test and say my pain's at a 10 or a zero, that I'm going to, without doing anything to my pain, I'm gonna feel better, why? Um, bringing awareness to the, the pain you're experiencing. It's the social part of the biopsychosocial model. Oh. And that's where they're, they're factoring in all of these things because we know it helps with pain, but we're trying to, via research studies and science, actually understand why these things work so we can maximize pain management. Mm-hmm. You know, it's wonderful that we have medications. It's wonderful that we have surgeries. You know, how do we uh, prevent those things? Even mm-hmm. good doctors, good pain management doctors, they want to use the knife last. Right. They want. They, they know in five, ten years the surgeries are going to be less invasive. Mm-hmm. They're going to be, you know, less side effects from that. So they're doing their best to keep people, you know, off of surgery before right. they get there. The biopsychosocial model is just taking into fact those factors, mm-hmm. um, looking at pain management as a whole and trying to figure out better treatment methods. That's for right. physical therapists, chiropractors, massage therapists, yoga teachers. I really think it spans all of those since we all deal with some level of pain. Right, right. And I mean, the bottom line is that so many people are living with pain. So many people have um, just kind of accepted that like, oh, I have a bad back. You know, I get headaches or whatever. They just, uh, you know, we come to accept where we're at. We accept that there's nothing that we can do. We accept that you know, oh, I'm just going to have to to live with this or whatever. Um, so just the idea for people to uh, open their mind to the possibility that there is something you can do. So our first recommendation, talk about what you're experiencing with someone. Talk about the pain you're experiencing or whatever you're feeling. Um, and so they've actually been able to see that someone just talking about their experiences has that beneficial effect. Yeah. Even when you say, 
you know, I have a bad back. And I know you weren't saying that about yourself. It was just a statement. Mm -hmm. Clients will tell me things like this. And this is the level of care, expertise, training that I'm dealing with. Mm -hmm. I don't try to disagree with the person. But I say, well, what's going on with your back? And they say, well, I have a, you know, a bulging disc. And I say, okay, have you been to a doctor and has the doctor diagnosed you? And they say, yes. Okay. Did the doctor tell you where the disc is bulging? And they're like, no. Because the doctor may not give them that information. So here's what happens with a bulging disc or a herniation. Unless that bulge. So basically what you have is an annulus. Mm -hmm. The annulus is like the chocolatey kind of rubbery shell. It has a gooey center called the nucleus pulposus. Sometimes what will happen is that candy shell will rupture or break or crack. Mm -hmm. The gooey center will ooze out. Mm -hmm. If that gooey center oozes out, that means almost nothing in and of itself, unless it presses on a nerve. When it presses on a nerve trunk around your spine, intense, searing, burning pain Mm -hmm. for some people. But here's the thing. Just because you have a herniated disc doesn't mean you have pain. And just because they think they have a bad back, I often, you're playing the psychological thing, really? Like, right. and I'm, I'm really playing with language at this point because I don't want them to think they have a bad back. Right. And the thing is, like, when I bring that to a level, it's like saying you have a bad back is like, I got into what I do because I was in a car accident. Was I always going to be in pain? So here's what I did. I internally decided the medical establishment in Louisiana at the time I had my accident in 1999 couldn't do anything for me. Mm-hmm. I tried. They weren't helping at all. They wouldn't give me pain medication because they said you'll get addicted to it. And I said, basically, I was like 8 out of 10 on a pain scale. Wow. I'm like, I'm going to wind up shooting heroin. I need help. I don't know what's going on. I went and tried to figure it out on my own. Mm-hmm. Did I have a bad neck? Um. Not until you had the accident. So and, it's not your neck's yeah. fault. And then most of the issues that I had personally. Now, I may have a reversal of the cervical curve in my vertebra because ligaments were stretched. I'm not saying I do. I'm saying I may. It doesn't cause pain. Mm. You know, like you get an x-ray and you got a curvature in your spine. In and of itself doesn't necessarily cause pain. You don't have a bad back. And that's where I have to work with clients because I don't want to push them towards my conclusions. I just don't like them to pick up the thing of like, well, you know, I have a bad back. Because that almost seems like there's something physically wrong with my tissues that's causing this issue. Mm. It's like the biopsychosocial model and the way that we look at that, there's a huge number of factors that go into pain management. Mm -hmm. Um, I had mentioned you earlier on another podcast we did about uh, John Kabat-Zinn. John Kabat-Zinn did a research study, and they took people with intractable uncurable pain issues. Mm. They exhausted every Western medical option possible, the best doctors. They pulled them all together because there's there's no help for these people. Okay. Right. They have they're the guys with a real bad back. We can't do anything. They put them through a routine, I think it was for six weeks or two months. What they did is they taught them very basic yoga, very gentle very basic meditation and had they put them through the six week, the month long, two month program. Mm-hmm. People who were like 8 out of 10 on a pain scale, they did nothing for the condition they had, their bad back. Mm -hmm. They would drop by like 4 or 5 points on a pain scale. Wow. But (laughs) it's because they're changing their relationship 
to their body. Mm. And when they say they have a bad back, I even go so far as with my students to try to express to them um, when I'm teaching massage therapists, because I don't want them to feed clients conditions. Yeah. In other words, if you came to me and said, I have a bad back, I try to kind of gently steer you out of that and say, oh, where are you having pain? Mm -hmm. Because it's not about your back. It's not even necessarily about the physical structure. It's about the fact that you're experiencing pain. You can still have, quote unquote, a bad back as long as you're not in pain over it. Mm -hmm. And the amount of discomfort or how it affects your life, you know, increasingly complex. That's why they've used the term biopsychosocial, uh, the biopsychosocial model of pain management. You're, you're taking all of those factors into consideration. Mm -hmm. And we have to figure out where's the pain coming from. In many instances, I will work on people, they'll be eight out of 10 on a pain scale. They were like me. Most of my pain was coming from soft tissue. It means that something went haywire in my nervous system because I had a trauma. Mm -hmm. um, I still to this day, uh, it wasn't that long ago, I was riding my, with my roommate. I was in the passenger seat and he was driving, not recklessly in any way, but um, I saw the brake lights ahead of us and I had like a mild, oh, yeah. like almost like a panic attack. Mm -hmm. um, my body still responds in a pre, not my neocortex, in almost like the amygdala, like the lower base, the reptilian brain right. to fight or flight because I'm like, you're gonna die. Mm -hmm. Like you were in a car accident. When I drive, I don't have that problem because I'm in control. Right. When I ride as a passenger, that's what happened in the car accident I was in. I was a passenger. Mm. I had no control. Yeah. So there's that sort of factor where what I do, even in language, is I try not to morbidize. I try not to give my clients or my students, I try not to give them conditions. Mm -hmm. The condition itself is usually they're having pain. Right. I often have to make a guess as to what's going on. Like in other words, if they come in with back pain, I don't say, well, you probably have a bulging disc. <laughs> I think since you're having this bulging disc, you're gonna have to see me once a week for the next uh, two years or so. Then maybe you'll get some you know, relief. Mm -hmm. I don't put people on that sort of treatment plan. Normally what I'm trying to do is very quickly, if you have a real issue pain-wise, eight out of 10 on a pain scale, I'm gonna try within two or three sessions to reduce that fairly consistently by, by two points. If I can do that, I'm happy. Mm -hmm. And if I can do that consistently, it means I can teach you how to work on yourself, mm -hmm. which is pain management. Right. And it's increasing your quality of life. And in my case, I'm not using surgeries, I'm not using medications, although I'm not opposed to those things. I just think that they're a little bit more last resort. Right. A lot of people are having problems with their nervous system. And when I talk about pain science, what I'll say is this, and I'll return to this, the nervous system is primary. Regardless of whatever manual techniques I or chiropractor or physical therapist or anybody use, you exercise therapist, you know, um, mm -hmm. what do you call it, a personal trainer or anything like that, mm -hmm. uh, therapeutic exercise, whatever you're doing, the nervous system is primary. Right. The nervous system is the thing that controls all of those elements. And even in the biopsychosocial model, the nervous system, your brain and spinal cord, is the stuff that's controlling all that soft tissue. Mm -hmm. The way I get back to your nervous system is this. The touch. Yeah. The actual physical contact with the muscle. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because... Um, you know, before I, you know, became involved with, uh, with Psyche Truth and, you know, I actually went through um, a certification program to become a holistic health coach. And a lot of what, um, 
you know, I just, I just kind of constantly felt myself having a little like light bulb going off moment. Um, is that so much of what we perceive as the way that something is, we're just kind of ignoring all of these other pieces. So as a very specific example, talking about uh, pain and tension, you know, we think, oh, you know, oh, I have this place in my neck, I have this knot in my shoulder, um, or whatever it is. And then it's in our brain, you know, our source of our problem is here. And so what you're saying is that actually the pain is coming, you know, from your nervous system, et cetera, et cetera. And so with that uh, study that you just mentioned, through these gentle stretches and, you know, uh, meditation and deep breathing, people were actually able to address the physical pain or reduce their physical sensation of pain by helping to relax the nervous system. Yeah. And, you know, so that's something that people can do for themselves, right? Yes. That's kind of when you say talking about teaching people how to help themselves. Yes. Yeah. The, the foundations of the yoga massage course are essentially some of the same stuff mm -hmm. that they would teach um, probably in that treatment study that they did, or similar at least. Right. What I notice in people with chronic pain, and I've had it myself, if people have chronic pain, one of the things I've been good at as a practitioner is because I've been in chronic pain myself, I understand it. Right. And inevitably when I get someone I can tell is in real chronic pain, um, other people think they're crazy. I'll report to you a story because these are always, um, these connect with people uh, mm -hmm. on a heart level. Yeah. Um, I had somebody years ago, I worked at a women's wellness center, part of a woman's hospital where I was born. Um, the spa there that I worked in, the front desk staff came to me and said, Robert, this lady is crazy. And I was like, who? And they're like, well, this lady booked an appointment with you like on Saturday morning and she is just nuts. She curses constantly. She's like, you know, and I was like, oh, okay. And I take all that with a grain of salt because I don't know this woman. I haven't interacted with her. So she right. comes in. She was in a massive car accident mm -hmm. when she was like 19, 20 years old in a sports car. Oh, dear. She's in chronic um, <clears throat> intractable pain almost like 24-7. I worked with her, I gave, gave her a session in an hour. She, she literally left. She booked an appointment every Saturday morning for like the next six weeks wow. because I could connect with her on a, an intellectual and a social level because she could tell that emotionally I understood what it's like to be in chronic pain. Being in chronic pain still means that you got to go shopping. You still yeah. have to do all the other stuff you do, and you've got this constant noise in your nervous system up to here. You're barely... Yeah able to breathe out of the water. Mm. What I do is come in and lower the levels so you're like, oh, thank goodness. Yeah. But being able to emotionally, uh, verbally connect with the person is as much, I think, a part of what massage therapists do or yoga teachers, any of those healing professions, chiropractors, mm -hmm. physical therapists. It's just as much what we do as applying manual therapy methods. Mm -hmm. In her case, the reason she was able to, you know, book those appointments is she felt like a resonance and a connection with me beyond just the manual therapy part. Right. It's not uncommon, like I talk to people who are in chronic pain, because that's what I focus on in my practice, and they just break down crying from the intake yeah. because they've not had anybody ask them, well, how, did, how were you hurt? What happened? When you go to a party, do you want to talk to somebody for an hour about their pain? Probably not. Probably not. When you go to a nursing home, do you like to sit around and listen to a 72-year-old woman talk about her arthritis and then... 
I mean, I would because I think it might help her sure. to have someone to talk but, to. But people eventually get to the point they understand other people don't want to hear about it. Yeah. And that's where it factors into that biopsychosocial thing. The mm. nervous system is primary. What I find happens is it's not just the pain they feel. It's not the bad back. Yeah. It's they're having anxiety and stress about the potential for more pain. Yeah. Now, let's say... I work on somebody, I reduce them by three points on a pain scale. They're at an eight, I reduce them to a five. And I tell them with confidence, listen, we've done this once. You've dropped to a five. I, we, when we started, you were at an eight. Now you're at a five. I think we can do that again. I'd like to see you again in two weeks. I'd like to see how you feel for the next two weeks. Mm-hmm. Whether you, you know, and I'll tell them because they've been in chronic pain. They have a lot right. of stress about this. I go, listen, if your pain spikes back up to an eight, don't, don't feel like you failed. Yeah. It's very normal. Your, your body and your nervous system has gotten used to a sort of equilibrium that's ow. Right. If you bounce back to that, don't get frustrated. If you even spike a little higher temporarily, don't be frustrated. This is part of an ongoing process. Mm-hmm. But I have faith because we did it once, I think we can do it again. Mm-hmm. If we can do it twice, I think I can show you how to work on yourself to manage some of your own pain. How would you feel if after two sessions I was able to show you how to almost instantaneously mm-hmm. bring yourself from an eight to a five? Inevitably, they'll say, well, that would be awesome. Yeah, life-changing. And, and I go, okay, well, that's what we're going to shoot for because I'm sort of laying out a, a treatment plan for soft tissue. Mm-hmm. And I'm laying out also what I think is the high point of pain management, which is a really engaged form of treatment, which means we're working together. Mm-hmm. I'm not just delivering the treatment and then, you know, you have to keep coming back through a revolving door in my practice to get help. Mm-hmm. I'm really trying to empower that person. A lot of times their pain is their set of five. The other three points comes from their stress and anxiety of having to deal with being in chronic pain and do the grocery shopping, take care of the kids. And the thing is, if we can reduce those three points, man, their quality of life goes through the roof if they're just at a five. Mm -hmm. If they're just at a five on a weekend, they can take a hydrocodone or whatever they've been prescribed and go to a three or a two. They have a much greater quality of life. Mm -hmm. That's what I think most pain management professionals across industries are, are working towards. Right. Please pardon this brief interruption. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Become a supporter at patreon.com slash psychetruth, where you can watch the video version of this episode and all of our other podcasts. You'll also gain access to over 500 videos of exclusive content, including premium courses and behind-the-scenes peeks. Help us keep this information free by visiting patreon.com slash psychetruth. That's P-S-Y-C-H-E-T-R-U-T-H. Well, I think that anyone who is in pain or has been in pain, and certainly, like you said, a more like uh, significant level of, of chronic pain, recurring pain, uh, can understand the... Uh, kind of domino effects that would come from even a small reduction in that level of pain. Um, but the idea that you not only want to help give people some relief after they come in for a session with you, but actually teach them and empower them to know that there's things they can do to help improve their situation. Anyone who's in pain 
would be open to, uh, wait, you mean there's something I can do? There's something that I can do that uh, isn't toxic to my liver, that isn't potentially addictive? You know, there's so many of these, uh, you know, pain treatments uh, that just kind of come with such a long list of their own risks and potential detriments uh, that the idea that there could be something that doesn't have detriments, isn't invasive, et cetera, um, is just something that people are, um, I mean, certainly something that I wasn't aware of. You know, it's so new for people to be taking more responsibility for their health, you know, and you know, the whole idea behind, you know, holistic health as a concept is that your mind, your body, these things are connected. And so what you're talking about is a very real connection between the nervous system, our stress levels, our levels of pain, um, and then on even maybe a secondary level, the actual physical um, tensions or tight muscles or, you know, whatever structural things might be going on with the person and just empowering people to, um, you know, kind of embrace this idea of reducing your pain through reducing your stress, um, relaxing the nervous system, doing simple things like deep breathing or talking with someone about your pain um, is just completely out of the box. It's just completely new. It's a different way of, of looking at things. I, I think fundamentally it's very simple. It, mm. You know, I try to make it um, as approachable as possible. Um, you know, I don't sit down and read research studies on pain science. Um, I pick up user-friendly information here and there from more advanced professionals. Mm -hmm. And then I try to use that in a way that's approachable, which is essentially what we did in the yoga massage course. Mm -hmm. All of this stuff is funneled through. We're just giving them a foundational platform to be able to work on their own wellness. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll know um, how many times do I say, you know, don't do this in a way that feels painful. Right. It can feel intense. You know, it's like, ooh, that's a stretch. Ooh, okay. But it's not painful. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to increase pain. I'm actually trying to decrease pain. It's amazing to me that people don't know they can work on themselves, but it's difficult for me, you know, 16 years in to put myself back in a position mm -hmm. of not knowing how to work on myself. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think that, you know, largely, uh, you know, if you just walked up to somebody and said like, hey, a lot of your pain can actually be reduced by helping to relax your nervous system through deep breathing, you're gonna get the uh, typical kind of eye roll response. Um, but for those people that are living with chronic pain, uh, there can be, you know, or hopefully there will be uh, just more of an open-mindedness to, yeah. you know, some of these approaches. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about, um, kind of why something like deep breathing is so beneficial. We kind of went into this in a previous podcast. I just think it's really fascinating. Um, and I think for people listening um, to really be able to understand why taking a few deep breaths has all these benefits um, is a great uh, impetus for them to you know really try it out for themselves and be able to see for themselves the effects. Yeah. So uh, across traditions from yoga, martial arts, uh, meditation, um, in Eastern traditions specifically, breathing is something they go back to again and again and again mm -hmm. as like a core, a root. The reason physiologically is breathing is both active and passive. In other words, 
if I held my breath, <clears throat> I would pass out and my brain would start breathing for me. Mm-hmm. I don't have to think about it. Right. Um, the, the challenge is if you take conscious control over your breathing, okay, you're starting to access portions of your autonomic nervous system. Your autonomic nervous system essentially controls like your heartbeat, your respiration. Mm-hmm. So you can't think and slow down your heart. I can't think and go, hey, small intestine, can you move food through there? Because that's a different part of our nervous system. Mm -hmm. I can think, hey, skeletal muscle in my bicep contract Mm -hmm. because that's a different part of the nervous system. Breathing allows you to hack your own nervous system and get additional functions. I can sit down on purpose and do deep breathing exercises and you can take my blood pressure before and after and see that I can slow down my own heart and lower my blood pressure. Hmm. Most people who do yoga regularly or meditate regularly and deal with martial arts and breathing can do the same thing. They may not test their blood pressure to see, but that feeling you have after yoga class when you feel, wow, I'm so calm, I'm so relaxed, wow, I feel... It's because what you've done is you have gotten rid of that fight or flight response Mm -hmm. and you've moved toward rest and relaxation, which is parasympathetic nervous system. Sympathetic is fight or flight, parasympathetic. Those parts of your nervous system are kind of going back and forth. Right. When you have to run away from the tiger, your body doesn't care whether you digested food. Mm-hmm. When you go into rest, that's when you go into digestion. Mm-hmm. Um, people inevitably, when they would get a massage, would always laugh because their stomach would... The reason it's gurgling, and that you use that as an example to educate, right? Mm-hmm. Biopsychosocial model, is you tell them, listen, the reason your nervous system, I mean, the reason your stomach is gurgling is because when you're relaxed, a different part of your nervous system is taking over, which is rest, relaxation. What breathing does is it allows you to hack your own nervous system Mm. in a Western way of speaking. What it winds up doing long-term as you practice it, it starts to allow you to have a conscious lever and control at any day and time Mm. that you're awake to be able to relax yourself, calm yourself, you know, Mm. and deal with um, issues. It starts to change how you interact with people. Um, it does help deal with uh, chronic pain. But in combination with the physical techniques I'm showing in like the yoga massage course, I really blended elements of these Eastern traditions in a way that I felt was easier to approach for a Western audience. Yeah. I don't take a very um, esoteric or Asian approach to these things because I think fundamentally, even saying they're Asian starts this this divide, the separation between East and West, when in the end, it's biology. Right. It's science. There's a reason that these things work this way. And really what I've been focused on or having a real dedication to is trying to understand them to be able to use them for pain management. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know, in a, in terms of application, that if people are, um, you know, open to this idea that, hey, I can relax my body, I can reduce my stress levels, I can reduce my cortisol, adrenaline, etc., by doing some deep breathing, etc. It's a great starting point for them to um, see how much power and control we have over our situation and over our body. Um, 
empowering us to, you know, take some responsibility uh, to be able to do things for ourselves. Um, and then from there, it's just kind of a, a jumping off point for them to maybe start uh, doing the gentle yoga stretches, doing, um, you know, some level of physical activity as gentle as it may be to start addressing the, you know, physical components of their pain as well. Yeah. What I notice with Western practitioners is I normally won't, um, like with my students, my students are massage therapists primarily, sometimes yoga teachers. I don't come in and start talking about meditation right off the bat. Mm -hmm. The reason why is it doesn't really make sense to a Western, I think, mindset. But here's what happens. If I teach them the yoga massage and I teach them soft tissue techniques to quickly address that leg pain they're having, mm -hmm. And then I go, oh, you feel that? And they're like, ooh, right, ooh, right there. They're paying attention to that spot. Now I'm like, breathe. Over time, as I work with them, they eventually wind up sitting with their legs crossed comfortably and breathing, which is meditation. Right. But it doesn't make sense, I think, in reverse. It didn't even make sense to me. Um, right. My way of dealing with that a part of my nervous system was through the physical itself. Mm -hmm. um, in other words, giving them a handle. Because when you come in with pain, I just have to help you with pain. Now, if I can reduce you from eight to a five on a pain scale in an hour, you're now my friend. Mm -hmm. Now we've opened a window where you're like, yeah, I want less pain. Let, how do we do more of this? And I go, okay. And inevitably, if they study with me long enough, they're like, man, Robert's mixing like all these esoteric like Asian traditions and looking at pain science. And wow, we thought he was just like a massage therapist. He's <laughs> you know doing all this crazy work. What I was going to say about the nervous system, um, the funny joke that I've always heard, I, I messed this up earlier. Um, the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight is the three Fs, fighting, fleeing, and procreation. Okay. That's the joke to get people to tune uh -huh. in. When you're in rest and relaxation, that's rest, rejuvenation. It's usually digestion and elimination. Yeah. Those are the opposite ends of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Most people get keyed up. What the breathing allows them to do is have a handle to basically hack their own nervous system that lowers their heart rate, mm -hmm. lowers their digestion, and allows them to take themselves out of a fight or flight response. Right. It induces calm and extreme clarity. The reason they talk about like insight meditation um, in Eastern circles is because meditators are actively harnessing different portions of their brain. They're activating portions of their nervous system that most people do not have control over. Mm -hmm. Having just a modicum of control as a Westerner means you don't have to lay on your horn in rush hour traffic. Mm -hmm. It means you go, well, dude, why am I, why am I, you know, gripping, you know, white knuckling the steer? Do you relax? Mm -hmm. And that's what happens from a yoga practice yeah. that you slowly integrate over your t over time. That's not just on the mat anymore. It's mm -hmm. something that integrates into your your daily life. Right. And I think that there's also an element of, um, you know, it's it's certainly in our Western culture, things are, uh, I just think more, um, you know, we're looking for physical proof. We're looking for, um, you know, a scientific explanation and understanding. Um, and so our uh, just kind of approach in general is, um, you know, very mechanically based, you know, we're have kind of a, a fear or apprehension towards uh, those more um, spiritual concepts. And, you know, even the word meditation, like you yeah. said, I think that, no. you know, your average person 
kind of has a very negative reaction to that. I, I take a very Western response. And if I talk to people, let's say at a party, because that's, mm -hmm. that's not a work environment. Right. And if it comes up in conversation and a person would say, well, why do I want to do yoga? I'm like, well, do you like to be sexier? <laughs> and they're like, whoa, I've never heard like a yoga teacher talk about, I'm like, yeah. So just to give an example, when I talk to you calmly, eloquently, and you can tell that I'm not stressed. Mm -hmm. Am I more or less attractive? And they're like, well, more. I mean, how do, when somebody is really stressed, are they mm -hmm. attractive to you? And they're like, no. So I think most Westerners would go, oh, wow, I've never thought about the fact that doing something like yoga or meditating regularly would make me more attractive to the opposite sex or potential partners. Mm -hmm. That's a, a very like um, Western way of like dealing with marketing of a practice like yoga. Right. It's like, you know, what's the immediate benefit? What do I get? When I go to Whataburger, I know what I get. Right. I'm like, I get a hamburger, fried drink. Yeah, you know, I get a Whataburger, right? But the thing is, when it comes to yoga, it's like, if I'm trying to sell, you know, spiritual benefits to some guy who's a trucker, I'd say, no, listen, what if I could give you something that would allow you to drive that semi 10 hours that day that would essentially allow you to maintain your focus it would allow you to gently, while you're driving, work on yourself, work on your back pain. I would be able to give you some simple stretches you could do on your brakes when you stop for gas mm -hmm. that's gonna increase your leg and hip mobility so your back doesn't hurt and you have like a better time driving. We just Sign made, me up. <laughs> we just made yoga for truckers. Right. But the thing is, but you'd never think of truckers as being like a primary market for yoga. The, the right. practice is so body work and massage, yoga massage, what we talked about. It's so adaptable. Mm -hmm. I always approach it at a very basic level because I really want more people to get involved. When you build a base foundation, then what happens is it disintegrates into all these different fringe kinds of yoga. Beer yoga, you know, lazy yoga, the chair yoga. The, Goat yoga. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of people, they become purists, like they want pure lineage, you know, back to India. And I don't personally care about that because I'm more rooted in the physiology. What does the culture pick up and what can we use? Mm -hmm. People in the West don't necessarily care about being enlightened. What do people want? They want to be sexier. They want to be they want fit. To be more productive. They want to be healthy. I'm like, hey, would you like to lose weight? Yeah. Well, listen, here's what happens. When you go into fight or flight, cortisol levels increase, which makes you want to eat. Mm -hmm. And what happens when you're relaxed and you're calm? You don't stress eat. Yeah. And cortisol also prevents your body from metabolizing fat. So from a very, uh, I mean, there's like all of these different perspectives you could take in yeah. and talk about why stress prevents people from losing weight, why stress yep. causes people pain, why stress, I mean, you know, uh, keeps people sick. You know, another part of that uh, parasympathetic nervous system is immune function. And, you know, sometimes my... Uh, friends will you know get a cold or get a flu or something i'll just kind of ask them like have you been under a lot of stress lately have you been sleeping very well and they're like oh god no i have this thing that's due and i'm in finals week and, <laughs> da, 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 and then i got sick and you start to see this like very real connection between stress and you know something as simple and mild as cold and flu sure. and you know all the way to um, you know, people that suffer from autoimmune conditions or even, you know, more significant illness. Um, and I just think that one of the, you know, most uh, amazing things you can impart to someone is how much they will improve their health on every single level, from every single perspective, just by getting more sleep.
just by doing something to help reduce their stress levels. Uh, so I think it's awesome that here, you know, we're uh, explaining why reducing your stress mm-hmm. is going to also help you uh, reduce your pain. And then, you know, to even take it one step further, being in that uh, rest and digest healing part of the nervous system, hey, you know what this is also going to do is uh, facilitate your body's own healing process. So that if there is a, um, you know, responsive inflammation or there actually is some kind of, you know, physical problem or tissue damage that's occurred, you are going to help allow your body to, you know, do its natural healing and repair of that um, if you're getting more sleep, if you're reducing your stress. Um, And the proof is in the pudding so to speak. (laughs) With with Westerners, you know, I don't talk about like normally. I mean, in this conversation, we're going into some depth. I don't go into great detail about spiritual traditions, um, things that I think Westerners aren't interested in. What are they interested in? Interested in losing weight? Everybody is. Mm -hmm. You interested in being sexier? Everybody is. Mm -hmm. You interested in being better at work? Everybody is. Right. All those things, those are easy selling points. I deal with, in my practice, with pain management. Yoga and meditation and their focus on breathing is life management. That's mm. what it is. When you talk about uh, Buddhism, for instance, and Buddhism has a strong tradition of meditation, I'll tell students things like this just to try to have them understand the sort of spiritual underpinnings, not the religion, the spiritual underpinnings. The whole idea of Buddhism is this. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Mm. From a biopsychosocial model, <laughs> what they're saying is, when you interpret, I have a bad back, you've pathologized a condition. Mm. The gods have faded me with a bad back that I can't do anything about. Now, right. when you're a slave to your condition, how do you feel? Powerless. Exactly. And it, it leads to depression. It leads to increased levels of pain. And that's what I'm trying to decrease. Mm-hmm. I start with very a very physical method, usually yoga. Um, if, if you want to call it yoga, okay, that's fine. Doesn't call matter it to me. stretching. Doesn't matter to me. Gentle movement. I go, hey, <laughs> what about moving and breathing with awareness? How would you like to move more pain-free? Oh, I like that. Okay, that's yoga. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. the same thing. It's just in America, we package it in different ways to get the idea across. Right. Part of the reason I like working with Psyche Truth and making um, the yoga massage course was you guys help me look at my own stuff from a different perspective about mm-hmm. what is the public looking for? What right. are they, you know, I can package this stuff again and again and again for different audiences. In the end, it was just trying to impart information in a simple, in a simple usable platform mm-hmm. that was accessible. Right. What I don't like is sort of lofty, oh, you'll never get there. <laughs> you'll never master meditation, right? I don't like that sort of um, exclusivity or ivory tower. Yeah. I'm, I'm very much a um, iconoclast in ways. I want to empower individual people to like their greatest good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So coming back to that uh, bio, psychosocial. Social. Yeah. So I guess we talked about kind of the social components of, you know, talking through what you're experiencing. Um, and then does that also include just like the human touch aspect? I mean, where does that yeah, fall? Yeah, I think that um, human touch is interesting. So I, I don't know of any specific research studies that have been done on this. When I started teaching yoga, I taught at a nursing home. 
I went through a standard yoga teacher training program. Um, I show up at this nursing home and I go, oh my Lord, these people can't do anything that I was taught as yoga. And I said, mm -hmm. everybody grab a chair. And I improvised chair yoga. They all loved it. Mm. Absolutely loved it. Part of being at that nursing home is they get a chance to hang out with each other, talk with each other, feel nice. Even in American yoga circles, we can do yoga at home. Why do we go to a studio? The social aspect. There's this, yeah, isolation. People who are extremely isolated, how are their pain levels? higher. That would be my guess. And I think that's what the social component of the biopsychosocial model is saying. Mm -hmm. If you took people and you had a support group for people who are in chronic pain and they get a chance to talk about their chronic pain, feel heard for their chronic pain, I guarantee you, you can do a before and after test and they're going to tell you they feel better after. Mm -hmm. You haven't done anything for their pain. Right. You've done something for how they approach mm -hmm. their pain. And uh, a burden shared is lessened. It's that same sort yeah. of you know basic concept. Yeah. Those components are something that I think good practitioners just have to factor in. Mm -hmm. It's something that, you know, um, let's say, just to give you another idea, the social model. What if you have uh, how, and if I talk to somebody, and I, I will do this in session. Somebody will come to me for a session. They'll explain they're in chronic pain. And I go, hey, what's going on in your life? They're totally taken aback mm -hmm. because they think I'm just going to ask about their body. And it's right. like, okay, how are your relationships? And I've had women start to cry mm -hmm. and say, my husband and I are getting divorced mm -hmm. and I'm having problems with the kids. Now, is that affecting their pain levels and stress levels? I would say yes. Just the fact that I cared means I'm now their massage therapist. Mm -hmm. It increases client retention. It decreases their stress levels. They feel more understood. When you get your hair done, you talked about like um, earlier that you like having your hair shampooed. Mm -hmm. Do you talk to your hairdresser? Oh yeah, probably too much. How do you, how do you feel <laughs> after you talk talker. to your? How do you feel? I always feel better. I always feel better after leaving. Maybe it's and, having awesome hair, but <laughs> no, and that's that... part of it. That's part of it. But it's it's grooming. It's grooming activity. In primate species like bonobos, um, bonobos are shown to spend like huge inordinate amounts of time, and this is kind of gross, but they groom each other. They will literally pick lice for hours. They will spend grooming each other. Well, when they're doing that, they're stimulating skin. It's a social component in their structure. Mm. One of the things that I see in the West, in the United States specifically, is I will ask women in my classes, Ladies, how often do you receive non-expectant, non-sexual touch from men? And they all laugh. Mm -hmm. They get no touch. When I would go to that nursing home, I would purposely go over to Maud. Hey, Maud, how you doing? And rub her little shoulders. And she was like, oh, you remind me of my grandson. She Aww. just totally opens up because she's lonely. She's in a facility with older people. She gets no touch. Mm -hmm. the, the, the facility itself, they can't hire people to be able to like spend enough time with them because they're busy changing diapers and taking care of them and cleaning wounds and things, right? right. They're not there to fill that role. But people have a definite need for touch. It is shown scientifically. We have done research studies mm -hmm. of, about what happens to babies when they receive no touch. It's horrible. Horrible. Right. It really stunts emotional and psychological development. The biopsychosocial model is just considering all of those factors. Right. The other thing is when it comes to touch in men, how much touch do men receive? Probably 
probably even less. Yeah, and the thing is, um, it really it does. It has a huge component for me, and I don't talk about this in class uh, excessively. All the stuff that's come down with Louis C.K. and Weinstein and rights about between men and women, gender issues, sexuality, rape, all of those things have an element of touch. I think that at its root, there is a component that deals with touch itself. There is a dearth of touch for men in the public, and when they have no touch, all touch becomes sexual. Yeah. It, men are homophobic, they don't want other men touching them, they have all kinds of weird issues. I dealt with a lot of my touch issues through massage and body work itself. Mm-hmm. Like when I was in school, and I, especially when I was having lots of pain, I don't care if you're a guy, can you help me? Yeah. Like please, touch me, I will pay you to touch me if you can help me. Mm. But in getting body work or receiving massage, you're also meeting your touch needs in the same way that seeing the hairdresser does because of the shampoo, the little bit of preening, all this stuff gets stimulated. How does it feel when they pull on little, you have curly hair like me. Awesome. Oh, dude, I do this and I'm like, why am I not doing this more? (laughs) (laughs) So the biopsychosocial model, it's like you can talk about it from like almost a lofty ivory tower of pain science and research studies. But how do we make it accessible and addressable. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, I go back to this again and again because of what I do teaching massage therapists or yoga teachers. I always wonder why it's not taught in school as a part of your physics, not physics, uh, biology, uh, health and hygiene. Mm-hmm. You know, how do people interact physically? Do kids touch in school? Yeah. You know, bullying, like all the stuff that happens. Like there's so much about the society at large that has issues with touch itself. And as a massage therapist, I feel like I'm on the front lines. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's also this component that um, the more that the culture creates a taboo around touch, it just perpetuates the problem even more. And as you kind of alluded to, um, you know, there's uh, so many benefits that you get from, you know, something simple, uh, someone, you know, touching your shoulder, giving you um, a massage or even something as simple as, you know, um, you know, like I remember as a little girl, you'd always like play with each other's hair and you would do like, you know, I mean, it was just uh, there was definitely more touch, you know, um, and then as you get older, all of that kind of goes by the wayside. And then, like you said, when you get your hair done or something like that, you're getting that physical touch. Um, and, you know, the understanding that something as simple as, you know, two people working on each other, um, like with the yoga massage techniques that you teach in that course, teaching people, hey, if somebody's got a, you know, short, sore neck, sore shoulders or whatever, here's this really simple thing that you can do to provide them some relief that, you know, a huge amount of that benefit isn't necessarily from the person knowing, oh, I'm touching this muscle and I'm doing this and I'm moving that or whatever, but just the intention Mm -hmm. of that person to help another person and just the physical touch between them, even Mm -hmm. if they have no idea what they're actually, you know, doing, what muscles they're manipulating, that that is so powerful and something that if we, you know, like you were kind of alluding to, if we were more encouraged to share that simple personal touch, Um, And if it wasn't this like crazy taboo thing, um, because you're right, there is this feeling now that like, you know, somebody is touching you, that it is potentially sexual or it's crossing this boundary. Um, And, you know, it almost, (laughs) 
you know, is uh, is perpetuating the stress, the discomfort, the chronic pain, and mm-hmm. all of these other, like, social issues Women in our culture are in a more socially acceptable space to touch, mm-hmm. um, to interact physically. Um, I see that changing some with men, but there's still a lot of... Uh, room to grow. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I deal with the Time Massage Jam, which I started here in Austin. And the Time Massage Jam was really my answer as a massage educator to the dearth of touch. And it's it's crazy to me, Karina, to sit down with people. And I'll tell you a quick story because I see it happen again and again. The Time Massage Jam happens in the evenings. And historically, the reason that happened was we could find a facility at night that would let us rent because nobody else is using the space. Mm-hmm. So we get the space cheap. I was pulling a lot of people who were 20 somethings in the acro yoga community. They were coming in. I was like working on them because they're doing this acrobatics and yoga stuff combined. And they were yeah. sometimes falling or hurting their wrists or compressing. So I would work on them and show them this stuff. And they're like, man, I feel so much better, like physically because of yeah. the body work. But then they were also dealing with touch. And what I always found funny was Whoever would show up that night to the party, which became the Time Massage Jam, was whoever partnered up and worked on each other. Mm-hmm. I would work on them, show them stuff. They would work on each other. They were dealing with their touch issues. Mm-hmm. And inevitably what would happen is a 20-year-old guy would come in, and I could see it in his face. He's like, oh, my God, I get to touch a girl. <laughs> <laughs> you can see it. I, I'm a guy. I understand the draw there. And he would work with someone, be overly excited. He would come back the next week, the next week. And eventually he would show up and everybody was sort of partnered up. And there'd be two or three guys sitting. And they'd sit there uncomfortably for like five or ten minutes (laughs) until one of the guys finally said, hey, will you work on me? And then they would work on each other. And I'm like, now you get it. Mm -hmm. Because when you have a degree of touch that's not sexualized, it opens up the expression of touch itself. Touch is such a, I mean, what do you have when a mother breastfeeds a child? Touch. Eye gaze, eye contact, Mm. touch, and then like nourishment, milk, right? You know, there's so much that's so primal about touch itself. I hope that you're enjoying this episode of the Wellness Plus podcast, Brought to you by wellnessplus.tv, a subscription service empowering you with everything you need to take control of your health. Sign up for your free trial today to watch the video version of this episode and all our other podcasts. You'll also gain access to our extensive library, including tons of follow-along yoga and fitness courses, massage tutorials, ASMR, guided meditations, educational health videos, and much more. Feel better, look better, and live better today with wellnessplus.tv. Um, one of my most pleasant memories, I, I, and I grew up in a culture where there, I was, there was a bit of a lack of touch. One of my most pleasant memories of my father, and I know even after long after he's gone, it'll be my, one of my most cherished memories is being tickled by my dad <laughs> and like pinned down. Where I, I can, da, 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 stop. I'm like almost crying right. because he's tickling me. Because it was such an intense, like, you know, nervous system response. But Mm -hmm. it comes from a place of care, safety. Mm -hmm. You know, when people don't have that in touch, for instance, because I'm a massage therapist on the front lines at a touch industry, women in my industry have to deal with guys who, you know, unwarranted sexual advances. It just drives me bonkers because I'm like, guys, why? 
if that's what you want, why don't you ask someone out? Like it's an inappropriate space to ask a professional who touches people for a living for sexual favors that they can't even provide legally. You know, and we can't refer out like prostitution isn't legal, right? right? So you're in sort of this weird, you know, dynamic, this murky area, mm-hmm. because I think that people just have poor touch needs. I do see mm-hmm. things in the culture cropping up, things like cuddle therapy, um, that I think it pe- immediately people dismiss. I think what people really don't understand is the complete lack of touch that some people in some situations have. Mm -hmm. Um, I always think about um, elderly couples. Men statistically die uh, earlier than women. What does she now do? Not have very much physical touch. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a really sad um, situation because we moved towards um, communal, the social, right? Mm-hmm. Social families where you had multiple generations where, you know, grandparents are supposed to chase around kids. That's what keeps them young. <laughs> they're supposed to, like, oh, they're 12, you know, they're two years old, run around. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to chase them around. Dealing with touch itself in a happy, uh, balanced way across gender lines, I think it just goes a really long way to creating a more peaceful, more equitable world. Mm -hmm. I really think that even the things we talk about with Weinstein, Louis C.K., all the stuff in the culture, I think there's a very strong core component of it that deals with touch. Mm -hmm. And it deals with the way that touch itself is sexualized because there's an inadequacy in people's capacity to give touch. Mm -hmm. And the more that it becomes taboo, and becomes unaccepted, the more you perpetuate the problems that it, stem. Yeah, if you try to suppress, it like pops up in a perversion some way. Right. It's something that, you know, it comes out as a monster somewhere else. Right. I, what we're trying to understand, I guess, from a biopsychosocial standpoint is touch is a normal mechanism. It is a normal social response. We are essentially, you know, hairless apes. We're not, I mean, we're, you know, 98 to 99% the exact same as that bonobo chimpanzee. There's probably, you know, more difference between two different birds than there are between us and bonobos. As far as like our social needs for touch, it's encultured, it's ingrained essentially in our Mm -hmm. genetics. Social isolation adds to all sorts of, you know, really bad things. Right. Yeah. So to kind of bring it back to, you know, the pain science uh, portion for the people listening who might be experiencing pain right now, um, a simple recommendation of getting some human touch, whether yeah. that's massage therapy, physical therapists, um, or even just, you know, having a friend or family member mm-hmm. that you, you know, do the yoga massage course with and learn yeah. how to work on each other, um, that the uh, benefits that can come in reducing your stress and thereby reducing your pain are, you know, are incredible. Yeah. Increasing the quality and intimacy and connection people feel. Um, Because I deal with men and women in my industry, you're dealing with touch needs. Inevitably, you butt up against sexuality. When I'm in my classes, if I want to get the students' attention, I mention sex. (laughs) Because like, ooh, the teacher talking about sex. That already perks up, right? Right. When, When women feel... Um, appreciated, cherished, listened to, uh, touched, nurtured, are they more likely to want to have sex? Probably. (laughs) Probably. So what I do is I teach men how to do all these things and have better relationships so they can have a better sex life. (laughs) That resonates with men. 
Right. You know, it's like, it's not opposed. Like the stuff I talk about with spiritual traditions or, you know, whatever else, it's like, I always take a very Western stance and like, how do we get people to want to take care of people? Um, I have to tell massage therapists, listen, you deal with touch for a living. What happens when you don't get your touch needs met? Do you want to push that off on clients? Mm. Ah, and it's like, I don't. So the thing is, I have to be able to manage my own touch needs. I have to be able to manage my own sex life. I have to be able to have good, happy, healthy relationships to be able to continue working as a professional in my industry, also as an educator. Right. Yeah. So what would be another, I guess, branch in the realm of pain science, so to speak, in terms of uh, causes of pain, and maybe more importantly, um, solutions for pain that people can use? So my knowledge base is fairly limited to my own realm, which is like yoga and massage. When it comes to people managing their own pain, um, I don't know as much about diet. I don't know as much about uh, pharmaceutical uh, medications because that's out of my training. It's not something I deal with. Mm -hmm. I understand that people get benefit from that, but I always go back to simple, non-invasive, usually right. touch in some form, mm -hmm. you know, harnessing your own body's potential to be able to work on those things. Mm -hmm. And it gives people a handle they can use on an almost daily basis. For many, many people listening, if they're in pain, I find that the public, even this many years in, they don't fundamentally understand. You can go to a local massage therapist, tell them where you hurt, and eight times out of ten, you're going to get a good massage therapist who can help you with your pain. Mm -hmm. What is that then worth to the American populace? Massage is much more common than it was 20 to 30 years ago. It's become part of a normal, happy, healthy health regimen mm -hmm. to go get a massage once a month with someone, you know, de-stress, unwind. Right. Um, the body work itself can be extremely diverse. You know, you could work on yourself using the yoga massage course or with a partner. Um, I try to empower and just give people more options. As far as a pain management, I also think that people underestimate the power of exercise itself. Yeah. Um, doing intense uh, cardiovascular exercise, whether that be like weightlifting or running, uh, has been shown, I think, in research studies to decrease people's pain levels. Mm -hmm. And it's not like you have to run a marathon. You know, you just have to get your heart rate up a couple times a week or whatever, right. two, three times a week. Um, things like exercise go a long way to helping people manage pain. And from a Western perspective, do we find people who exercise more attractive? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm losing my attractiveness at 41 eating Cheetos on my couch, but <laughs> it's like long term, generally speaking, I think that exercise is under prescribed, if mm -hmm. you will. Um, and the thing is, when it comes to exercise, I don't even tell you how to exercise. Nine times out of 10, when I talk to clients, I don't like to talk to them about diet or exercise because those two things stress them out. Mm -hmm. I'm here to de-stress them. Right. I don't say exercise. I say, what physical activities do you like to do? I go, huh. They're like, well, I like to dance. I'm like, then you should go dance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I encounter this as well in my, uh, in my health coaching that I do. And, you know, it's... Um, you know, it's kind of funny, this like kind of theme of semantics has like kept coming up um, all throughout, you know, that, you know, you start saying like, 
you need to exercise and that word just like immediately kind of elicits a negative response for a lot of people, understandingly so. It's not as fun as sitting on the couch eating Cheetos. Um, You know, so I've kind of embraced this idea of, um, you know, just move your body. How, what, what can you do to move your body more? Maybe it's, you know, you take a walk around the block. Maybe it's you get up from your desk, you know, once every, you know, ideally every hour, but maybe you just start with once a day to begin with. Um, and you just get up and you just move and you don't call it exercise and you don't call it a workout. Um, and you're just moving your body, mm-hmm. stretching, you, you know, it would probably look like yoga to a lot of people, but I just try to really stress to people that you can let go of the semantics. If you don't like exercising, don't mm-hmm. call it exercise. If yeah. you don't like the idea of yoga, don't do yoga. I had a woman come to my yoga class years ago, and this was when I was still living in Baton Rouge, and I walked up to her and said, hey, how are you doing today? And she's like, yeah, I'm okay. And I went, are you happy to be here at yoga today? And she's like, well, I'd rather be riding my bike. And I'm like, so why don't you go ride your bike? Like, I don't want you to put stuff in your body that you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. It's like, if you don't like yoga, if it's not particularly speaking to you, I don't have any, like, I'm not religious about yoga. Right. Yoga to me is just moving and breathing with awareness. Your moving and breathing with awareness might be on a bike because your yoga is bike yoga. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's getting people to do stuff that's fun. The right. movement portion. How well do the elderly move? Typically not very well. Unless they keep it up. And that's why you're trying to encourage some sort of mobility. Mm -hmm. Now, if you don't like the term mobility, it's just whatever you'd like to do. You know, when it comes to movement, what activity do they enjoy? Mm -hmm. Um, Some guys enjoy hunting. Well, go. Go walk out in the woods and, you know, hike up to a deer stand and hang out. a bunch of fresh air. Yeah. It's like it just depends on what you enjoy. Mm -hmm. I don't want people to do things they don't want to do. Right. Yeah. And I think that really comes back to that whole idea of empowering people. And part of that just comes from, you know, letting them know that like, hey, whatever movement thing it is that you like to do, um, you know, there's uh, all of these different video games now, Dance Dance Revolution mm-hmm. kind of a thing comes to mind. Um, and even the virtual reality stuff. I mean, a lot of times you're watching people do their, their VR or whatever, and you're like, man, I'm actually getting a really good workout right now. Um, and so I think it's just so important for people to just kind of understand you're going to get so many benefits from moving your body, all you have to do is figure out something that you enjoy doing that doesn't feel like a a chore. You know, by and large, when I work with people that are trying to lose weight, you know, the, the problem is not that they are biologically unable to lose weight. Their body is biologically not able to metabolize fat. And the problem is the, is the consistency. They've created a kind of hate, hate relationship with whatever their exercise regimen is supposed to be. And so there's no way to motivate yourself to keep doing it. Yeah. Diet and exercise means they have to eat stuff they don't want to eat and do stuff they don't want to do. And I'm fundamentally opposed to it. I mm-hmm. just don't, I just don't think that's the case. People would talk to me about diet and I'm like, you ever try cooking? And they're like, what? But my problem is I need to get away from food. And I'm like, no, your problem isn't getting away from food. Your problem is getting away from fast food. Mm -hmm. There's a difference. When you make food yourself, the food is different. Mm -hmm. The calorie content is different. It takes longer to prepare. So when it comes to a glutton of the sense, I love food. I'm a cook. I've been a cook for years, long before I was a massage therapist. When I cook a meal for my family, I made red sauce and uh, spaghetti the other day, spaghetti and meatballs. I spent hours. 
I had to thaw out the meat. I had to process the meat, put bread crumbs in it, cook the pasta, make the red sauce. I, you know, brown the red sauce and caramelize it in a pan. Got to smell the olive oil, dice up the garlic. <laughs> I got to live through all of my senses for hours mm-hmm. long before I ever took a bite. Because what we're doing is we're using that thing we're having attraction to in the Mm -hmm. senses. I'm getting to sit in all of that constantly for like a gluttonous amount of time compared to most people because I decided to cook a meal. Now, when I cook that, was the calorie content or whatever it was, higher, lower? I don't know. I don't really count calories. What I do is I'm able to live in a state of like what's pleasurable. Mm-hmm. It's like if you like sailing, man, get a boat, yeah. <laughs> borrow a boat, you know, go out right. and kayak, whatever it is you like on the water, you know, do things that you like to do. Um, I don't want people to do things they don't like. Mm-hmm. In, end of story. I, I think that if you're looking at diet and exercise that way, you're, you're fundamentally flawed. Right. You know, the exercise we do isn't punishment for what we ate. It's a celebration of what our body can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, just, you know, to kind of bring it back to the idea of pain, because certainly there are several, you know, dietary components, you know, if you um, are deficient in magnesium, just to take one simple example, that's going to affect your physical muscle tension, your body's ability to relax, etc. So there are definitely dietary components surrounding pain. And I'm sure that we will um, explore that on this on this podcast. Um, And there are certainly benefits of of exercise or movement or whatever. So um, for those listening, I would just encourage them to kind of try to let get out of the semantics of it a little bit get out of the thinking that you have to do some particular type of workout or duration of exercise or whatever all you have to do is move your body and when it comes to a nutritional component uh, you are so right that just making your own food at home is going to be um exponentially better for you in terms of your health even if you were making hamburgers pizzas, you know, tacos, all the things that you love to eat at the fast food, if you just make them yourself with, you know, slight, you know, even if you're just using slightly healthier ingredients, you know, bottom line is that if you're eating fast food, you're eating junk food, not only can your body not um, process those foods, but you're going to have so many nutritional deficiencies of the things you're not getting and those highly processed foods that it's almost expected that you're going to end up with a health condition or pain or something like that. In the yoga massage course, we're trying to help people manage pain. When I teach them or want them to try to cook, it's because I'm trying to get them to manage their diet. Mm -hmm. You guys, it's going to change. If you're doing tons of exercise, you're going to want to eat more. and You're going to be able to respond to the fact that, oh, I want cherries. I mean, I don't know what's in cherries that my body's wanting exactly, but the idea of cherries was very attractive and appealing, so I bought cherries. The same thing happens when you're a cook. You're able to say, okay, I want eggs. All right, do I want olive oil or butter? Both. (laughs) Well, there you go. See, and you get to choose that if you make your eggs yourself. Right. Not only does it reduce food costs, I think it goes a long way towards, and here we go again, in America, do women like men who cook? Yeah. Well, there you go, guys. So, yeah, I try to tell you. I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> and I mean, in this day and age, it goes both ways because there's a lot of women that don't cook, too. Yeah. Um, definitely kind of going a little bit off the topic of pain, but it's a very, um, you know, I think it's just a great example of one of the things that if we can start to take a little bit of responsibility for our health and 
know that we can have a positive impact on our daily life, on our pain levels, on our stress levels, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that if you can feel empowered to know that there's something you can do and you just start to make even the simplest step towards doing those things, you're going to experience the benefit. And guess what? It only is going to motivate you even more yeah. to do a little more, do a little extra, et cetera. When it comes to health and wellness, there's, you know, dealing with chronic pain, but then there's also increasing levels of wellness. Mm. It's like, as far as how good you feel, how high can it go? Right. And that's really, you know, limited, I think, only by your genetic factors and the degree to which you're willing to work on yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, you know, uh, mental limitations we put on ourselves by thinking things like, I have a bad back or I'm not flexible. Mm-hmm. I'm not flexible enough to do yoga or whatever. Um, there's so much of our uh, mental, um, I don't know, so many limitations we inflict on ourselves just with these kind of mental uh, agreements we've made with ourselves. Um, so I just truly hope that people are encouraged and inspired to uh Take a little responsibility, you know, even just trying one little thing. Uh, we talked about a couple different uh, tangible tips in this podcast that people can use, like doing deep breathing, getting more sleep, um, doing some kind of movement, having the uh, social connection, whether it's just talking about your pain, talking about what you're experiencing, talking about what's going on in your life, um, or the actual physical touch component where you find either a professional or even friend or family member who can give you some of that physical touch and all of the benefits that come from it. Um, I just truly hope that uh, people feel better after, mm-hmm. after listening. Yeah. Uh, Robert, thank you so much for joining me here today. I am so grateful for you taking the time to be here with us on the Wellness Plus podcast. And I'm really excited to um, venture into some of these other topics and uh, have you back again very soon. All right. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for tuning in. I truly hope that you have uh, found this little chat helpful. And if you'd like to learn more about Robert, you can visit him at robertgardnerwellness.com. I want to thank each and every one of you for being here today. And I hope you have lovely rest of your day, rest of your week. And we'll see you again soon. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Become a supporter at patreon.com slash psychetruth, where you can watch the video version of this episode and all of our other podcasts. You'll also gain access to over 500 videos of exclusive content, including premium courses and behind-the-scenes peeks. Help us keep this information free by visiting patreon.com slash psychetruth. That's P-S-Y-C-H-E-T-R-U-T-H.